Hi, I'm Albert Pisawa. Hello, my name is Kevin Jeffries. And this is the 635 Podcast. The 635 Podcast is about local politics, economics, and social and cultural issues in the Alvin Community College area. The views expressed on the show are those of the participants and do not reflect the views of Alvin Community College. Welcome back to the 635 podcast. Uh, I'm Albert Pasala, and I'm here with Kevin Jeffries, and we have a lot to talk about today. We have construction going on on the I-45, you probably noticed. We've got uh, the upcoming primary election, and we also have uh, redistricting. We have a new map, and we're going to find out what that's all about. And we have Kevin Jeffries. Why don't you walk us through all this stuff? Certainly, Albert. The... Among the things we were talking about this week in my classes were issues involving federalism, which is the relationship between the national state and the local governments. And one of the areas where you see that especially active is in transportation and, of course, in highways. And that is no big surprise to anybody that lives in our area because we've mostly finished the 288 expansion. And a few years before that, we also had that with 59. Uh, old-timers will remember that there used to be an overpass over the museum area, and that's been dug under. Well, it seems like for some time now, for about 20 years, the Texas Department of Transportation has been looking at extending those projects and completely redoing I-45. And this comes and goes in the news. You see this from time to time. It's been on delay recently because there have been some court cases that have delayed it because quite often when highways are laid, there is a path of least resistance almost. Um, Wealthier areas tend not to have to suffer highways being built through them. Poorer um, and mostly minority uh, communities uh, generally do. So there have been some lawsuits that have been filed to slow this down. But eventually, uh, these things get resolved, and we might be to the process where that is occurring, so we may start to see the beginning of what could be a protracted period of time where you see highways torn down and redone Uh, where 288 turns into 45, where 59 goes around 45, you know, it does this funky little thing south of downtown, and towards the east of downtown and the west of, uh, I'm sorry, the south and the east of downtown, all of the highways will be redirected that way with the idea that they're going to get rid of the Pierce Elevator, and they're also going to open up um, the uh, downtown towards Buffalo Bayou, so all of that, uh, the overpasses that are, currently going over the bayou are going to be uh, gotten rid of. So, um, Can you could just give me an overview of what, um, what the whole 45 construction is? Because as far as I know, it was like I moved here about five years ago and they were just already building, I believe. Um, so is, is there a certain time where they just consciously, consciously decided that they're going to, I guess, widen the 45? I mean, that's, I mean, that's all I, I know about you know, this whole 45 project, they're definitely widening it. Is that, um, is that what you mean by expanding and then like... Widening and redesigning, uh, trying to look at where log jams happen to be uh, and redoing it and also responding to where people are moving over the course of time. There's this ongoing joke, and I know this applies in other places around the country. You know, when did, you know, I-45 was originally begun around, I guess, 1946, 1947. When was it finished? Never. You know, but, well, part of the reason for that is that people keep moving around there. Highways break down uh, and have to be expanded because you have more people that are moving around there. And so you expand it, you stop, and then more people keep moving and highways break down. 
And so you see these modifications um, occur from time to time. And of course, there's also this constant flow of funds that comes from the national government through the um, uh, Texas Department of Transportation uh, and a particular ongoing cycle of funding that leads to the uh, development and maintenance of these highways as well, too. And it's also the kind of thing that's funded every time you go get some gasoline. So where, where does the... Where does the funding come from? This is in, in, in interstate, so is that does that mean it's all federal money for all this expansion, or what's the what's the breakdown? Well, next time you go on a highway, if you notice, you've got some signs that say it's interstate, some signs that say it's a state highway, uh, and other things, a farm-to-market road mm -hmm. as well, too. You know, So that's why you have all levels of government that are involved in this. Now, you can find this information. I remember with the class one time, we were trying to figure out, okay, what was the funding actually like for this redevelopment of 288 uh, that is still in the process of just now being wrapped up. You know, there's that little bit of a little chunk of it where it goes off to the uh, West Loop heading south from going north on 288 or coming south. Um, and it was a slightly over a billion dollar project and about a billion came from the national government. There was, if I remember, it was like $20 million that came from the state of Texas to fund a particular um, uh, ramp that went into the, uh, the medical center. And I think the local funding largely picked up a lot of the, uh, the, 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 the feeder roads and things like that. Uh, and everything was necessary in order for the streets going beneath the bridges. So there's, there's a mishmash of federal, state, and even local money that's going into the 45 freeway itself? All freeways, yeah. That's, that's, that's the way the thing works. Okay. Yeah. Well, that sounds like really interesting dynamics there of uh, basically saying, you know, please, we really need this, but also please don't put it on the hook for a ton of money. Uh, well, and you also have other individuals that will come in and they question, you know, the car-centric nature of these things. Are there other ways we can handle um, uh, transportation issues? This is one of the things that happened when we had the expansion of I-10 not too long ago. Mm -hmm. uh, for a while, people were trying to push back and said, okay, we don't want just solid concrete for, I don't know how wide that thing is, you know, 200 yards, 300 yards, something like that, a quarter mile, a highway, whatever it is. Uh, people were talking about something that was a little bit more, I don't know, complex with trees and things like that, but of course that ended up not not happening. Now, it, Community Impact News has a little bit, and I wanted, let me let me read like a, you know, two or three paragraphs right, of this. that story here. Yeah, to give you an idea of the, um, Mm, I was going to say tension. I don't think it's so much tense between the different levels of government, though it does get a little bit more tense when you're talking about some of the groups that are still hoping to stop this uh, for purposes of reorienting transportation in places like Houston, away from cars, more to mass transit, and also uh, civil rights groups that are concerned that we primarily focus these developments on minority communities. Anyway, reading through this, the Texas Department of Transportation's Transportation Commissioner, Laura Ryan, and this is from, what, uh, a week ago, January 31st, two weeks ago, said the agency was confident that agreements could be reached with Harris County and the Federal Highway Administration over the controversial I-45 widening project. Now, again, there's your state uh, 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 agency dealing with the local agency, Harris County, and also the federal agency. Ryan's comments came at a luncheon hosted by the North Houston Association, a regional nonprofit business association. There's your interest group. Harris County Precinct 3 Commissioner Tom Ramsey, who voted against the county's initial lawsuit against TxDOT, moderated the conversation with Ryan. This would have been one of those uh, lawsuits that was filed in order to slow the process down, not, not just for 
civil rights issues, there were some also environmental protection issues as well. Ryan said the Federal Highway Administration, which opened an investigation into possible violations of the Civil Rights Act in October, was open to a voluntary resolution agreement. That agreement would allow some modification to the design, but the purpose of the project would not change. Ryan did not clarify which aspects of the design would be modified. Uh, and again, as I mentioned before, it seems like most of what they're looking at doing is just redirecting all the traffic to the uh, eastern, uh, southern and eastern parts of downtown, freeing up the other parts of downtown to, you know, the Montrose area, the Midtown area, the uh, Buffalo Bayou area, the Heights, I suppose. Uh, and I think it's also part of a beautification effort. So, wait, what is the actual dispute? There's a civil rights issue here, and what, what is exactly? That it is going to create um, a, a disparate impact disparate negative impact on minority communities. The widening of the freeway itself? Yeah, because you're going to, you know, take some houses down. Oh, yeah, okay. You're gonna, and interrupt also some, uh, some businesses as well. So, you know, if you've noticed on the other side of um, uh, 59, you know, you have the um, um, convention center. Then on the other side, you have like a, some pretty cool developments. You know, the soccer stadiums over there, uh, Eight Wonder Brewery. Some really cool restaurants, uh, music venues, things like that. Warehouse Live is over there as well, too. Some of those would be impacted by that as well, too. And obviously, you know, if you're one of those uh, groups out there, you're going to want to push back. You know, you don't want them, them to disrupt your livelihood, disrupt your business or whatnot. And so that's the nature of these complaints. And I have a link. I don't have it accessible right now, but maybe we could put this up at some point that shows the, the precise... Um, complaint that has been filed to the uh, national government, the federal government, uh, Department of Transportation, detailing uh, their issues. But I, as I mentioned, that was part of it. The other part also being, okay, what kind of impact is this going to have on the um, ecosystem in that area as well, too? So you do have that kind of pushback happening right now. I mean, well, I mean, it would be nice if you know, these, these things can be hammered out when they when they plan it, right? And so they're saying the actual current expansion or they're saying the expansion plans are creating a threat? Well, these plans have been, you know, I think initially, I don't see this in front of me right here. Maybe it was just something else I read. Um, it's been uh, already a 20-year process. I mean, that's how these hmm. things go. You know, we have, oh, what was it? I think around here. You know, we're on the Alvin campus, and I can remember even 15 and 20 years ago having some meetings trying to figure out where our little section of the Grand Parkway is going to go, the third loop around Houston. You know, this has been some time. I don't think that's been worked out as of yet because I guess they've focused on areas towards the west and areas towards the north. So they, they do this on a regular basis, you know, because, you know, cities, especially cities, growing cities like Houston are very dynamic. So you're not necessarily sure exactly what your tra your transportation needs are going to be. You know, you're going to need them, mm -hmm. uh, but it takes some time to deal with all of the stakeholders yeah. uh, and do something that is, uh, I guess mutually acceptable okay i see i mean the only part of the 45 expansion i really see a lot is the one that it uh, goes parallel with uh the gulf freeway mm -hmm. and i've always wondered why are there these two roads that are just totally parallel and like going up, uh, going you know the same direction i thought that was the weirdest thing and my my g maps i guess it can never tell which freeway i'm on and <laughs> and so I think it's weird, but I always remember speculating, like, what is the purpose of these two parallel roads? 
And I always wonder, and, I, and then I just speculated as something about federal money versus state. And well, I think the one in the middle, if you're going, you know, towards Galveston, mm-hmm. if you're going towards past the loop, past 288, uh, the one in the middle is where you stick to. But if you're on there, for example, let's say you're going through downtown from the Heights or something, you're going to go to U of H. So you'd be further off to one side. Uh, and I think with some of the ones they've done recently, and I, d- I don't know, it'd be interesting to get like a traffic engineer or somebody here that kind of gets into the psychology of driving or whatnot, because you would have a lot of areas where I can remember you would have people slowing down because at the last minute they make a decision to go from 45 to 59. Mm-hmm. You have to make the decision very quickly. So here, if you're going north and you want to get on 59, you have to make that decision very quickly because mm-hmm. you're on that one outside a uh, chunk of the uh, of the highway. So I think that is intended to lessen uh, traffic because you are, you know, hopefully dealing in a positive manner with any kind of the, uh, you know, the screw-ups can happen. Is it true that the 45 uh, freeway or high freeway, I guess, uh, is like one of the most dangerous in the country? I mean, I've heard I don't that, know if that thrown is around, and I'm, I'm just not sure if that's the true. The area that I always hear about, and one of the more busy intersections is where the West Loop and 59 intersect. And um, I'm trying to think of areas. I mean, it has been in the past, but it's been changed, changed around quite a bit. I mean, it's not the safest place, but, yeah, I think, I think 59 and 610 kind of, kind of beat it. Um, okay. Maybe areas of 290. But, again, you know, that whole area has been changed uh, around as well, too. Uh, so, and again, I, I purposely said, like, you know, the psychology of driving, they're trying to figure out, okay, what are people actually going to do on the road? Uh-huh. You know, I mean, there, there's an idea about what sorts of things we'd like them to do in terms of deciding if they're going to go to the left or the right or whatever. Mm-hmm. When you need to make that decision, and, of course, you need to implement that stuff and try to figure out how to, like I said, deal with the screw-ups. <laughs> you know? And with uh, the story we looked at, with a potential complaint, do we have um, a time frame and what, what's coming down the pipeline? So a, a complaint was filed, and what could we, what's going to be the next move that we might, and like what sort of time frame? According to this story, they don't really have that time frame, but they do mention that some of the timing is also based on funding that's coming from the national government. And some of this is from the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act from uh, two, three, four months ago. Uh, so apparently that's kind of in process. Uh, but again, because you have a you know political oppo- uh, opposition to certain things, um, actually receiving the funding that can let things go forward, where you can actually start to break ground, uh, no one's committal and committing uh, to anything like that. But it's 20 years into the idea, and um, you know we might still be talking about this in five or 10 years. Probably will be. <laughs> but it's also you know as I said you know the the sort of thing that's going to impact our trips up north for a period of time oh yeah definitely definitely um all right so let's move on so um we have a primary election coming up and um what does it look like well uh it's going to be march 1st tuesday we will have early voting coming up pretty soon let me look at let's see from february 14th february 25th the last day to register to vote passed already. That was January 31st. Now, if you have already registered to vote, you know, don't worry. It's a good idea to double check, you know, call the, uh, call the county just to make sure. But if you're in the habit of voting on a regular basis, then you really don't have to worry about your voter registration. Um, last day to apply for a ballot by mail is going to be February 18th if you choose to do that. But again, early voting gives you an opportunity for about a 
10-day, 11-day period to be able to show up early on, but again, it's March 1st, when you actually will go to a voting location and vote. And things have changed quite a bit. Now, again, uh, I, I live in Harris County and I vote there, so I'm not, you know, in a, you know, face-to-face interaction with things in Brazoria County, but I know that everything, everything is online now. Everything's, everything's electronic, I should say, not necessarily online. But you can vote pretty much anywhere now uh, in Harris County. I don't know what the situation is in Brazoria County. Uh, but what we're going to have, again, as you mentioned, it's the primary election. And what I'd like to do, first off, let's be clear about what the primary election's about and also understand which, what offices are going to be on the ballot. And as we know, we have brand new districts. This is going to be the first election for the districts that are drawn after the most recent census from two years ago. Oh, wow. Okay. So the redistricting then now will have an impact right in this, in oh, this absolutely. upcoming. Okay, absolutely. awesome. Absolutely. Let's find out what that's going to be like. And we can like. talk a bit about, you know, what, well, what's the logic of redistricting, why it happens. But before we do it, let's just be clear that when we're talking about primaries, we're talking about the elections where the two major parties in the state of Texas select their nominees for the offices that will be decided in November. So it's a long process. You've already had a few months where people have, you know, um, claimed they were going to run, trying to get on the ballot. And we can talk, maybe next time we get together, we can get a little bit more clarity in terms of who's already on the ballot, you know, because there are people that are competing against office holders. And uh, sometimes, let's say if you're a Republican, you might be your you might ne- not necessarily be worried about an opponent who's from who's a Democrat in the general election. Mm-hmm. Maybe your you know strongest opponent might be another Republican in the primary, and we'll see mm-hmm. this because there's some interesting tension that seems to be arising in some of the state executive offic- uh, uh, positions that are going to be up for grabs. So, so let me get, let me get this big picture here. Um, first of all, which party has the the more interesting primary coming up? I mean, if if this was like, where's the excitement going to be? Is it is it spread out across both parties, or does one party – is there more drama going on in I think party? the drama for the primary is going to be with the Republicans. Is that because there are more Republican incumbents? Well, or? that is one thing. But you also have a lot of Republicans that are not necessarily satisfied with the governor, Greg Abbott. Uh, yeah, some I, that are not happy with the attorney general. He's had some, some issues to deal with, and so some people thinking that – Maybe not Abbott, but if uh, uh, Ken Paxton is uh, renominated, maybe he's he he could be beat by a Democrat in uh, in November. And Democrats haven't won a statewide election in something like twenty five or thirty years, so that would be a problem, you know. So that that's um, those are among the issues. And I think when we come back in and talk about this a little bit more in terms of personality, that wouldn't be a bad thing to focus on. You know, what what is the strategy? that uh, Republicans have right now to maintain those offices because they pretty much control everything on the state level. So Abbott is is on is in the primary. He's being primaried this current election. He has about five or six people, I think, uh, probably more that are running against him. In fact, someone whose name is Rick Perry, uh, <laughs> who's not Rick Perry, but he's Rick Perry. Oh, it, this is a different Rick Perry? A different Rick Perry. I yes. wonder if he's going to use that. for. Uh, I don't know if that is a plus or minus. Uh, I, I, well, <laughs> I'm not going to touch that. Uh, but, uh, yeah, it could be either. But, again, what we have coming up, um, you make a choice, you know, one or the other. Remember, I think we talked about this a little bit before. When you register to vote, you don't register as a member of a political party in the state of Texas. You just register to vote, and you make the decision if you're a Republican or a Democrat by voting, choosing to go into the Republican area or the Democratic area when it comes to uh, voting in the primary. Now, one thing that 
listeners might be interested in, if you're ever interested in kind of getting involved a little bit more in depth, if you choose to join the Republican Party for an electoral cycle by voting in their primary, then you qualify to show up at the precinct convention. Maybe then you can go to the county convention. Maybe then you can go to the state convention, and you can be in a position where you have a little bit more say-so in terms of what the party stands for, Mm -hmm. or at least start the process where you can become a little bit more of a known entity uh, within it. Um, Now, again, these are just the folks that are going to have R's and D's by their names in in November. You've also got some minor parties, and I say major and minor in terms of what the uh, state of Texas refers to them uh, by in its electoral code. If one of your candidates for statewide office gets at least 20% of the vote, you are considered to be a major party and you have to select your candidates with a primary. If you're less than 20%, then you're considered a minor party and you select your candidates through a convention and that's generally where the Mm. Libertarians and the Green Party uh, sit. Uh, And they will later on this summer, they'll select their candidates and again, there's opportunities for independent candidates and write-in candidates and things like that. If you'd like, let's let's talk a little bit about the, uh, what's gonna be up for grabs. All right, let's turn to that, let's see. And I don't know if you're using the resource Ballotpedia. All right, let me pull that up and, and look through it. I'm, I'm the one scrolling, so I'm going to try to follow you. But let me know what you find interesting here. Well, just, the, just what is listed right here, the ones that are in blue, bold blue, that's, that's what we get to vote for. Uh, and if you notice first up on top, I don't know if you're there yet, um, there's no link to the U.S. Senate. We don't get to vote for a senator, uh, United States senator this year. You know, the U.S. Senate is carved into three different classes. This takes us back to the U.S. Constitution. You remember, they have six-year terms, but they overlap. So you have three classes of senators. Uh, So every time you have an election, two-thirds of the senators sit out. We're only, only, you know, voting for one-third of the Senate every two years. Excuse me. Um, That's that's the federal Senate. Yeah. What about the state Senate? State Senate, four-year... This is interesting. Uh, Now, let me me just conclude what I was going to say with the U.S. Senate. Um, We, you know, every state has two senators, but there are three classes of senators. That means every state only gets to vote twice out of every, you know, three electoral cycle. And we don't get to vote this time. We reelected Cornyn in 2020, and he's going to hold the office until 2026. Uh, Ted Cruz in 2018, he'll hold on to it until 2024. This is 2022. We don't get to vote for anybody. Hmm. Now, the Texas Senate, in the Texas Constitution, it's set up to have 31 people in it. And it also has this overlapping structure. Um, One year you'll have 15, the other year you'll have 16. Now, this is going to be an unusual election. Because, obviously, once every 10 years, you have to redraw districts because of the census, and that is to make sure that you have roughly the same number of individuals in each of these different districts, uh, meaning all these districts are new. So everyone in the state Senate for this election is going to uh, run for election. So all all 31 senators. Wow. Yeah, all 31 senators. But this is what happens. One of the first things they do when they get in they have to draw little slips of paper that will define them as being either in hmm. uh, the first class or the second class. And I can't remember which it is. One of them has a two-year term followed by two four-year terms. The other one has two four-year terms followed by uh, a two-year term. And apparently they draw these numbers from a Stetson hat 
So oh. a cowboy hat in the middle of the Is there other. required to be a Stetson hat? I think in the Texas Constitution, uh, I'm, not, I'm just making that up. It's not, I didn't say anything. Someone wants to invalidate the entire process. That was a wrong hat. That wasn't hat. a Stetson. No, that was a I'm straw sorry. hat. It was just a, some, some straw hat you find and found in your grandma's attic. Um, so, so the entire the entire Senate's up. Is that standard procedure for every, I guess, census, every roughly 10 years? They... There is a, an election that all the Senate if is If you look at the United States Constitution, uh, the only reason you have the census, well, actually, there were two reasons initially. The, uh, the, the two reasons were to apportion direct taxes to the states, which doesn't matter anymore since we have an income tax, but to apportion also representatives to the United States House of Representatives to the different states. So... Uh, in, a por- in, 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 in a way that is proportionate to their population in terms of all the other states and whatnot. And we gained a seat? Did we gain we a gained seat? two. We well, gained Texas two. has never not gained a seat because we keep keep growing. California's still holding I steady. think 56. I don't know. I think they stayed the same. Okay. We can look it up. We're two clicks yeah. away from finding out. Uh, but I'm lazy. Um, but, yeah, Texas got uh, two more this last time. Now, here's the thing. Now, because there are a couple of things with this. Remember, what the census also figures out is not just how many people are in a particular state, where they live. Now, that provides an opportunity then to have some material to figure out, you know, where the people live in these different districts. Because if you want to make sure, and the Supreme Court about 60 years ago had a case saying, when it comes to the United States House of Representatives, all the districts have to have the exact same number of individuals as measured uh, the, the day of the census, you know, which is early April. Now, of course, you know, you're taking the figures in different time periods. But Down you're to saying, the person? Yeah. Wow. Well, well, actually, we can find this out. <laughs> I mean, if you want to get on uh, the Texas redistricting page, let me, I'm going to do uh, this on my end right here. All, right, all that ahead. information is available. Texas, rep- oh, let's see. I'm sorry, redistricting. Texas redistricting. That's what I meant to do instead. You can see the ideal population that they have up here. And there's a bunch of stuff. We should, we should come in at some point and just dig through all of this. But if you look at, I think it's uh, 2020, ideal population, apportionment and ideal population. Ideal population means, okay, what's the number of people that are supposed to be in these different districts? Mm. So in 2020, we had, 2010, I'm sorry, we had 36 districts and if you took the population of Texas, 25 million and change, and, vi- and divided by 36, you got 698,488. And as originally designed, that was a precise number that needed to be there. Now, the minute, though, that, you know, you designed this, or actually the minute you, you drew the, the, you know, you figured out, you, you took the census, people are still moving. I just like to describe yeah. it like every once in a while. It's like taking a picture every day of an ant bed. You know, it's never the same you know, any second, you know, so you're kind of capturing where it happens to be at a particular moment in time. Now, over the past 10 years, we gained about 4 million people. So we went from 25 to 29 million, 145,505. We got two new seats, so we have 38 districts. And so when the legislature redraw those districts, the ideal population was 766,987. This is for which position? Senate? United States Congress. No, remember the oh, United Congress. States Senate oh, yeah. doesn't okay. change. The text now the the state Senate does. The ideal population there, thirty one districts, divide, you know twenty nine million divided by thirty one, uh, nine hundred forty thousand one hundred seventy eight. 
150 members of the state house, and that comes down to 194,303. Now, the thing with the state senate uh, districts and the state house districts, you have to take into consideration um, county borders. So there's a little bit of a lenience. It doesn't have to be exactly the same, but it has to be more or less the same. Now, this is to make sure that you have shifts in population. Um, you're not going to have a distortion of power in an elected institution. And this goes back to when people were moving from farms to cities, uh, you know, over the last 100, 150 years or something like that. There was a court case, as I mentioned, about 60 years ago, heard from uh, Illinois and Tennessee, I believe, that people that were living in urban areas were far less powerful in a legislature than the agrarian areas, powerful politically, uh, even though they had more people. And that's because of the way that these things were were drawn. And so, you know, th this kind of gets into gerrymandering, you know. So that's mm -hmm. something we can kind of uh, touch on to if you want. Do you know if other states, are they going through something similar that will a lot of um, state um, Senate offices be opening up? Um, Every state does. Yeah, yeah. In terms know. of now they've all redistricted or most of a lot of them? Some states still are. I mean, I just wonder if this is going to create a, a nationwide effect if, you know, if other states are in a similar position as Texas and that uh, they've redistricted and then now they have to fill Senate seats um, all at the same time. There could be a lot of a lot of turnover happening you know, across the country. During this period of time, you have a lot of upheaval. You know, you have individuals that are drawn out of district. There's a lot of dirty politics that can be, get played. You know, one of the ways you can get rid of somebody you don't particularly care for, say the majority party wants to get rid of somebody from the minority party, draw them out of their own districts. It happened about 20 years ago. There was a guy named, I think it was Kent Benson, was uh, represented the 25th district that was in the Rice area, and so the 25th district was moved to Austin. Hmm. You know, so that's one of the things you can do. And, you know, again, like I said, if you want to touch into this uh, maybe sometime in the future, we can kind of get into some of the specific things that are happening with the map because there are places where you can go and you can kind of drill into uh, the map and see some of this. Let's, let's take a look at the, the map of the new, the new districts. Are you going to the 538? Yeah, let me, yeah. Let, me, let me pull that up. And again, this is on the national level. Remember, in terms of the election, we've also got folks on the, the, you know, the state level. All 150 offices in the state house are going to be up for re-election, all of the uh, 31, because, again, every fifth election, it, it works out this way. And now the governor is going to be up for um, uh, re-election as well, too, as we mentioned. It says other state executive offices. Now, remember, Texas divides its uh, executive into different positions. So we have um, the uh, lieutenant governor, we have the land commissioner, the attorney general, some positions we talked about before that are also up for grabs. State Supreme Court, intermediate appellate courts, uh, the um, uh, Court of Criminal Appeals, school boards, municipal governments, we'll get into those sorts of things later on, and any odd ballot measure that might slip through as well too. So um, this will be an, an especially uh, busy electoral season. By the way, um, one of the things that also does this for the state of Texas is since we elect our judges, all of our judges, uh, and we have, for example, in Harris County, 60 of them, uh, they serve overlapping four-year terms. So every time you have an election, there's 30 judges that That's you vote for. 
That's another thing that really threw me off um, coming from California is that um, I don't even know her name, but there's a female judge in Houston mm-hmm. who seems to be involved in everything, like every big news story. Um, what is the most famous judge from Houston? Female. She's in the news all the time. You're talking Lena Hidalgo? I think so. Now, she's a county judge. Now, that's a different thing. It's not a – the county judge is not a um, judicial position. Okay. It's really more of an executive position that's what even it though seems the history like. – Yeah, but that's, that, that's a county position. We just happen to call them judge. Mm-hmm. Oh. I think in the same way that, you know, it used to be back in the south, you know, everybody was called colonel even though you really had not – you were never in the army. It, it really did confuse me because it sounded – in many cases it sounded like she's the mayor or something, right? There would be an emergency happening and then, well, then this judge would come out. Well, she's the mayor of the county – you know, um, not okay. quite, but, you know, in charge of the county commissioner's court. And, yeah, All right. uh, and, yeah, in charge of county officials. And remember, we talked a little bit about the nature of counties. Counties are established in order to enforce state rules. So they're, they're really not legislative institutions in the sense that they're like, well, like, like what we are. You know, institutions that are established in order to carry out the laws passed by the state. Okay. All right. So let's look at this map uh, before we wrap it up here. Um, what does um, – all right. So – I got this map, and so that says old map, and this is just, um, it shows the borders of, um, what exactly? You got the borders of the state, and what you're looking at here is the, the map of the 36 districts that were drawn 10 years ago. And again, uh, this is also a reflection of what the population of the state looked like. Uh, where everybody was spread around. Um, so these are each a congressional seat. These are congressional districts. Yeah. Wow, that is and a I, huge, what did I mention before? Is this the twenty third? Well, there's a reason for that. Yeah. yeah there's nothing over, there. There's driving, nothing there. I dr- driving through this last va- break. Um, yeah. Well, there are as many people in that district if you drill into Houston, you know, as are in the. Uh, well, let's see. Let me scroll over a little that bit is, there. That's amazing. The Heights area. You know, uh, Heights and downtown and whatnot. You know, it's the same number of people. 688,000, I think it was. Now, here's where things get interesting, though. Uh, And, you know, the census also, uh, you know, tries to estimate changes in population in the United States over time. And so what you can also do is, okay, what do they think at this period of time, the number of people that are in these different districts? And so looking at the districts from 2010, we happen to be in the 22nd district, which was the fastest growing district uh, in the state of Texas. We went from 688,000, I think it was close to a million. In other words, the, the 300,000 people moved into this particular area uh, over the past uh, 10 years. As you know, right, 288 and all mm-hmm. of that, you know, that's why we have all the new roads and things yeah. like that in this area. It also attracts individuals as well. So obviously that's going to change. You know, if we look at the new map, it's, it's completely different. Some of the districts are a little bit smaller or they're realigned in different sorts of ways. And, you know, one thing we can get into also in Texas constantly gets uh, accused of this is that it's drawn with the idea that you want to have an Ooh. influence mm-hmm. on um, who wins. So if you look at the new map, remember what uh, had to happen. Oh, I saw something. I just clicked on the new and I saw some more blue down down south. Yes. That's yes. the, let's see. Well, this, oh. this shows also huh. the majority of Republican and Democratic votes in the different uh, districts. And I believe what they looked at they precinct by precinct they looked at the uh presidential vote so i think that's what they're saying right here you know? so the these colors they're showing they're showing which way they went in terms of the president 
They're, they're yeah, determining it's saying, the color. It's saying Republican and Democrat, but I believe actually what they're measuring is votes for uh, um, Trump and vote for, votes for Biden. Okay. Just really quick, what is our breakdown of our congressional delegation in terms of Democrat versus Republican? It's about two-thirds Republican and one-third Democrat. Okay. That is interesting. And again, you know, like I said, the new map, you have these two new districts, and so, you know, where do they go? The, you know, every state decides for itself where these places are going to go, and they decided that Houston's getting one and Austin's getting one also. And there's an interesting story here with Austin, because for the longest time, Austin did not have its own district uh, in a way to try to split the political power. Oh, uh, okay. They were gerrymandered, basically. Very gerrymandered. Yeah, exactly. Wow. So you have a lot of Democrats in Travis County, but in the old map, you can kind of see this, you know. Part of Austin is split into, what is the one that goes, the 15th, goes all the way down to the border. You know, one of them, uh, the 10th district, you know, goes from actually West Harris County to Austin. So you're splitting it that way. And so you only had one uh, Democrat that was representing that area. So, you know, I mean, what are the, the deals that are being made to lead to the, saying, okay, we're gonna, you're going you're gonna to keep the 35th district, well, which effectively goes from Austin to San Antonio, but also you're going to get a new one, 37th District, that's completely within Austin. And, of course, Austin's one of those areas where you've seen a tremendous amount of population growth as well, too, so um, it could very well have been that. You, you did that sort of thing and make it, make it more difficult for any kind of legal challenge uh, to, uh, to have any traction, because there have been. You know, there are some stories saying that um, the Latino population growth that's happened in the state of Texas over the past 10 is not measured, was not taken into consideration uh, with this map. So it could very well be after the election this November, uh, maybe there are fewer Latino representatives. And so what uh, interest groups could do is take those figures and take it to the courts and, you know, attempt to make a plausible argument that there was a deliberate intent to try to minimize the electoral strength of Latino voters in the state of Texas. And so I see here, and in, in, in the old map, of course, in general, there's a lot of red due to the land mass, and then it looks like Democrats are concentrated around uh, the big cities, mm -hmm. right? And that includes Dallas. Mm -hmm. Dallas, Dallas mm -hmm. is blue. Um, well, the middle part, the, the city part, you know, you get around Plano and things like that. Mm -hmm. But it's spreading out a little bit. I mean, obviously, we're looking at districts right here. We're not looking at counties. And if we were going to look at counties, we would note that... Uh, um, it's getting increasingly competitive in the districts surrounding Dallas. Tarrant County, actually, for the first time, voted for a Democrat. They voted for Biden. Very uh, barely, not much. But on the flip side, too, you know, Republicans will point out that uh, they were able to win some counties in South Texas on the, in the Valley. Mm -hmm. uh, and again, just like, you know, Biden barely won Tarrant County. Uh, President Trump barely won some of the uh, um, counties on the on the border, uh, but, you know, you win by one, you win by a million, you know, it's, it's still a win. And so this old map versus, the, and when I look at the new map, we have more blue coming from Austin going down south. And then what I think is interesting is I see there's um, increased um, redness, right? We're going, um, there are pockets that were sort of weaker red mm -hmm. on the old map. And mm -hmm. on the new map, there's certain pockets that become at least based on this map, become more intense. Um, what would cause that? Just that it's redrawn in such a manner mm -hmm. that it just contains more solid Republicans? Yes. Now, here, here, here this is what's interesting, though. Um, you take a little bit of a risk if you constant. Well, well here, here's the dilemma. You, either, you, uh, you can secure... 
your victories in certain areas uh, by drawing in a lot of Republicans. And since Republicans dominated the legislature, you know, they were able to design, you know, draw this the way that they chose to. Um, that can limit your expansion, though, at some point. So there's al- also mm-hmm. this tendency to sometimes yeah. to, instead of drawing yourself, let's say, a, you know, 20-vote victory or yeah. margin, let's say, in a particular congressional district, maybe it's a little bit less, 10 or so. But the problem with that, and this actually happened in the Dallas area, you can spread yourself a little too thin. And that's what happened, I think it was Dallas County, where by the time uh, so many more Democrats had moved into it, uh, by the end of the teens, I guess we're calling that uh, the last uh, the last decade, that uh, Democrats won all of the races, the state house races in Dallas County. And again, Republicans had spread themselves a little bit too thin. Mm-hmm. You know, there's an art to this. I don't know, art or science or something. You know, there's a, you know, people that this is what they do. They try to figure out how you can break these maps in such a way to maximize the representation of whichever party happens to be the majority. And it seems just going from the old map to the new map, it seems like there's fewer comp- competitive districts and it and it's almost like maybe the purpose of this was in a way for both sides to have guaranteed spots and fewer sort of coin flips or or tighter races and and maybe I don't know maybe that was the objective rather than sort of one side gambling and and creating more competitive districts and then saying you know let's see what happens it's you know part of the guessing game yeah do you do you want a for sure victory at a particular level, or do you want to have the possibility of having a greater victory, but also the possibility of a greater loss? Um, yeah, but you're right. You know, they're, one of the things that people, political scientists have noted for several decades is the decline of competitive districts. Uh, in fact, there's only one that I believe right now currently is designed to be highly competitive, uh, and it's the one that goes from Austin down to the uh, uh, down to the yeah, border. Yeah, yeah. Um, Which one is that? That is the fifteenth. Tw- Fifteenth, yeah. Yeah, yeah, even in terms of wow. its partisan lean. Now, you know, to, to go a little bit further with this, some folks make the argument, and I, I kind of buy into this, that the um, this contributes to polarization because if, like with the primaries coming up, yeah. um, you, the Democrats and Republicans, with few exceptions, know who's probably going to win in November. So you need to make sure you're bolstering support with the folks right now who are going to for sure vote in your primary. Yeah, you're just appealing to the base. Just yeah. Just to the base. And, oh, your yeah. own base, and you really don't have to reach out to the other side. Yeah. So you're, you don't have a – you might actually be punished for being somewhat moderate. Yeah. All right. So it looks like um, we'll probably be able to have another discussion before the next primary, hopefully. Yeah. And we can take a look at so um, some of the specifics that are going to go on there. And then, of course, redistricting will, will still be relevant. And uh, probably the 45 freeway will still be relevant. So uh, um, I think it will be. All right. Well, thanks for checking in with us. We're at 635. And talk to you guys later. See you later, Kevin. Bye, y'all. See you, Albert.